What was the author of your favorite book thinking and feeling while they were writing it? What do they want you to feel when you read it? What was the point of writing the book or story at all? Why do we read and tell stories? Well, for the book at hand, Herman Melville's Moby Dick, I wonder what Herman's true ambitions were for us. I wonder if he had any idea how many people would be reading his words. Sometimes I think that he may have had a premonition due to some of the essays he wrote at the time prior to writing Moby Dick. He spoke about people rivaling Shakespeare, kind of challenging the public. I don't know if he was speaking about himself or, or what really, but maybe he was just writing another story to make money to make a living. He did say that some of the stories he wrote were he wrote as a man would go to build a fence or build a house to make money as a living. So he didn't really put him whole, his whole self into them. Um, but Moby Dick, he definitely put all of his soul into, you can just tell. Um, and maybe he did know, you know, this is, this is gonna be my masterpiece. And maybe that's why it was so hard for him when it wasn't received the way he wanted it to be. Um, been an incredible journey so far just in the opening pages. We've experienced a wealth of emotions and received a boatload of information. In my eyes, the first part of the story has been told and set up. The book will shift a few times in feel and format even. I welcome you to take this incredible journey with me and welcome to the seventh episode of my literary analysis podcast, Night Reader. That being said, I highly recommend that if you are interested in taking this journey with me, that you listen along to the first five episodes. You'll be perfectly caught up and have all the information you'll need. This book has a plethora of different and sometimes complicated themes, ideas, perspectives, illusions, and much more that I have moved through in a way that anybody can understand. So again, I welcome you and invite you to listen to those and if you are all caught up or you don't feel like doing that, then let's begin to talk about the figurative second quarter of this book. If you have heard those episodes, you know my passion for the novel and its characters. We all have characters that we identify with, and I've grown quite close with Ishmael. He feels like a great friend or brother. I'd love for you guys to message me on Facebook or Instagram or whatever and let me know what character from a book or movie or game you've connected with, or maybe felt they were similar, similar to you in some way. I said this in prior episodes, but I just love the first 19 chapters of the book. There are so many great virtues and lessons to be looked at. I honestly could have spent so much more time there, but for the sake of interest and all that stuff, I covered every important scene and aspect so far. 
The book will only get more gorgeous in every way from here. And I'm very excited to talk about it with y'all. If you do have any questions about something I may have missed or references I skipped over or anything you want to talk to me about, or maybe your perception differs from, uh, your perception differs from mine, I'd love to hear that as well. Get some bounce back from you guys and uh, have more conversations with my listeners. Last we heard from Ishmael, he and Queequeg were mere days away from boarding the Pequod, a great whaling vessel under the command of Captain Ahab. Ishmael has experienced many ominous signs, foreboding and telling prophecies and connections have been laid out before him. Some so coincidental in their nature that he can hardly ignore them. But he's caught up in his adventure. The contract is signed. He has no choice but to correspond and go along with the journey. He's more than willing though, don't get me wrong. In episode one, and the first opening chapters of the book, we take a much deeper look at Ishmael as a character. For now, he and Queequeg gear up for their adventure. Chapter 20, All Astir, begins with Ishmael describing the necessities of the Pequod. Captain Peleg sits in his teepee on the ship and oversees the rigging crew's work. Captain Bildad does all the shopping and outfitting. Even his sister helped out on the crew by bringing odds and ends on board. Little things that may be forgotten or aid the crew in some way. Aunt Charity, they called her, and she was indeed charitable, going out of her way to provide items of comfort and safety for the shipmates. Ishmael is feeling quite anxious in the days leading up to the voyage. It was to be a long one, no doubt, and whaling voyages were the most dangerous. Ish and Q visit the Pequod every other day and ask of the mysterious Captain Ahab, who has not made himself present in the novel yet, but he will make a great entrance very soon. We've heard much of him, though. Some good, some bad. The most striking of events has been the introduction of Elijah, the street prophet, who delivered some haunting information to Ishmael regarding his future and Captain Ahab. It is the perfect coincidence. He's on the fence about believing it fully and is denying it pretty much. But deep down, there's this gnawing premonition of something terrible, darkness and death, all masked by the wonders of the vast open sea and adventure. But there it looms, a huge dark figure like a silhouette of a crashing wave over the Pequod and its inhabitants. Could this all be a means to an end? Ishmael says to the reader that, in hindsight, the feeling in his heart was much stronger than his thirst for adventure. He wrestled with it, and at night especially it toils in his mind, pressurizing his fears to disturb sleep. He tries to keep his mind off the subject and cover up his own suspicions. Finally the day comes when they receive word. The Pequod, next morning, would certainly sail, and so they awake around 5 a.m. the day of and ready themselves to go aboard. Chapter 21 Going Aboard The ocean island of Nantucket stirs in her sleep. Heavy gray mist hangs over the island, and far ahead Ishmael and Queequeg spot four or five shadowy figures, other early morning sailors most likely, heading towards the Pequod. I imagine the excitement of boarding a plane or a boat, the jumping off point of a great adventure. Your blood boils and your heart jumps. Your limbs feel loose and your head's in the clouds. Now keep this in mind. 
It's 5 a.m. and all dark outside. As they hurry towards the wharf, they hear an eerily familiar voice from the dark behind them. Avast. You going aboard then? It was Elijah, the homeless prophet, appearing before them again as the last person they would see before they set off. He places his hand on their shoulders and pushes himself between them. Ishmael and Queequeg are tired of this man's oddities. They shake their shoulders out of his grasp. Queequeg asks him to go away in his broken dialect. Why was he out here at this time of the morning? Was he waiting for them? Did he somehow know they would be leaving this morning? Very, very odd. But we already know this man has some sort of deeper understanding of the situation as a whole. He seems to know more than anybody ever should about Ishmael's voyage. So, you won't be going aboard. Yes, we are, indeed. But what business is that of yours? Do you know, Mr. Elijah, that I consider you to be a bit more than disrespectful? No, no, no. I wasn't aware. Elijah, you will oblige my friend and me by withdrawing yourself. We're going to the Indian Pacific Oceans, and would prefer not to be detained. Ye be, be ye. And ye'll be back before breakfast. What? He's cracked about the head, Queequeg. Come on. Have a safe trip, friends. A safe trip. But he strolls back up to them again, and placing his hand on Ishmael's shoulder one more time, he asks him, Tell me, shipmate, did ye see five men heading towards a ship just a bit ago? Yes, I, but I did see four or five men. But it was too dim to be sure. Very dim. Very. Morning to ye, shipmate. Oh, I was going to warn you. Never mind. Goodbye to ye. I shan't see ye again very soon, I guess. Unless it's before the grand jury. So, what happened here? Elijah once again proves his insight to Ishmael by correctly guessing that he had seen some shadowy figures heading towards the Pequod as they left the inn that morning. Then again, maybe Elijah had somehow been following and overheard them speak of the crowd. It's an odd back and forth this man plays by pushing and withdrawing quickly with odd warnings then suddenly winding the situation down. What is he suggesting when he makes the remark saying he will see them before the grand jury? Is he hinting that something bad surely will happen upon that ship? It makes him seem crazy. Ishmael is in wonderment at this man's franticness. 
but there's no time to linger. Finally, Ish and Q step aboard the Pequod. Not a soul is moving. Also, all the doors are latched. They find one small entrance near the front of the ship, heading down into the hull, with a light on in the inside. They enter and come into a room where an old shipmate was sleeping face down on a bench, in a deep sleep with his head buried in his arms. As Ishmael eyes the sleeping shipmate, he asks Queequeg, the sailors that they saw earlier, where had they gone to? He was sure he'd seen four or five men ahead of them boarding, but nobody was about, nobody at all. Ishmael asks this question that it seemed Queequeg hadn't even seen the shadows, only Ish had seen them. He would have easily believed it was just some kind of optical illusion that he mistook seeing any men ahead of them. But then why did Elijah ask about them? He couldn't be crazy. These thoughts are boiling within Ishmael, but he stuffs them down. He asks Q if he thinks they should wake the man up. Humorously and obliviously, Queequeg sits on the man's backside as if it were a plush cushioned seat. Ishmael tells him to get up. The poor man's having trouble breathing and is having his face pressed down into the wood. It's a wonder he hasn't woken up on his own yet. Well, Queequeg rises and scoots over to the tip of the bench, just above the head of the sleeper. He pulls out his good old tomahawk pipe, a familiar trinket, and lights it up. Ishmael sat on the other end of the bench by the man's feet. They keep the pipe passing over the sleeper, back and forth. Ishmael asks why the heck Q sat on that man's rear end. Q explains that in his homeland, there's a lack of couches and comfortable chairs for the kings and chiefs to sit on. So they buy up cheap slaves and lay them around their palaces to be used as seats and footrests. It is quite the oddity to think about. Ishmael wonders about the tomahawk pipe, which ironically soothes the soul of Queequeg, but it has bashed in the skulls of his enemies as well. The thick tobacco smoke filled the small room before long. The man's nose began to twitch and he choked on the smoke. He sat up, rubbing his eyes, asking, Who be you smokers? They say, We're shipped men. They ask him when they're going to sail. He says, They're going to sail today as Captain came on board last night. Ishmael was surprised to hear that Captain Ahab even showed up. They hear a noise from above deck. The sleeper says it must be Starbuck. So they go up to see what orders would be given. The sun was rising now, bright and clear over the blue ocean. The crew shows up by twos and threes. Things are getting busier. Meanwhile, Captain Ahab hides below deck, invisible in his cabin. Merry Christmas. Yes, it is Christmas Day. The Pequod is but an hour away from sailing, and all the last-minute things are being brought on board. Captain Peleg does most of the shouting and cussing. In the distance, men sing tunes aloud. The crew swears and works, pulling ropes and steering the ships. All hands were on deck. Peleg was a force to be reckoned with, no doubt. He was a mess of a captain. Ishmael worried that the ship would sink before the anchor was even up under the crazy old man's command. Involuntarily, 
Ishmael stops pulling his rope in wonderment, just for a moment, when he feels a sharp poke in his backside. He turned quickly to see Peleg's leg withdrawing from him. He had just received a swift kick from Peleg for stopping, and it was a hard one. He asks him if that's the way they move in the merchant service, telling him to break his back, get moving. He went about using his leg very freely. Ishmael thinks to himself that Captain Peleg must have had something to drink today. Well, the anchor was up, sails set, the pull off out into the open sea. It was a cold, short Christmas, says Ishmael. The day merged into night, and before long, they found themselves on the wintry ocean with a freezing spray of white waters keeping the crew covered in ice, almost looking like a polished armor as the white foam clung to hairs on their arms. The long rows of whale teeth down the bulwarks glistened white in the moonlight. Icicles hung down like long tusks. It's a lonely thought to be out at sea on the day of Christmas. Long and tall Bildad manned as pilot on the first watch. And as the old ship dived into the green seas with frost all over, he sang, in steady clear notes, a beautiful biblical jingle. Yes, I've just said the words biblical jingle. A hymn about the ocean deep. Never did these words sound so sweet to Ishmael as they did then. His voice was full of hope, resounding and sweeping around Ishmael, despite the frigid night and the bouncing Atlantic Ocean. Though they were cold and wet, Ishmael pictures a haven in his mind. He pictures beautiful tall green grass, not stepped on, unwilted, and remaining even at midsummer. They were swept further out to sea and it was no longer necessary for Bildad and Peleg to be on board. It seemed their jobs were done. A small sailboat had been alongside them, ready to take them back to shore. It seemed very difficult for good old Captain Bildad to leave the Pequod. He had a close connection with it. Thousands of his dollars were invested into the vessel. His old captain and friend were sailing out upon it. Everything that interested Bildad he was readying himself to bid farewell to and he lingered long, walking the decks back and forth, triple-checking every stock, running down below deck to bid farewell, back up, striding anxiously. Finally, coming to the front of the boat, he looks off into the distance at the continents far out of sight. And the rolling gray waves of the night, he looks windward, looks up at the sky, looks back towards the land until at last, it seems he could stand to leave the ship Barely, and hard-headed old Peleg, it seemed a small tear glistened in his eye, surprisingly. Captain Bildad says, Come old shipmate, we must go. Back to the main yard. Boat ahoy. He says good luck to Starbuck. Good luck to Mr. Stubb, Mr. Flask. Goodbye, and good luck to you all. On this day three years from now, I'll have a hot supper smoldering for you in old Nantucket. 
Hurrah! And away. Bildad blesses all the sailors. He wishes them well weather, saying Ahab would be above deck soon as they reached a warmer climate. He told them not to forget their prayers. He shouted out all kinds of last-minute things for people to not forget. They both dropped over the side into the small boat. They diverged, and the cold breeze blew between them. Gulls fly overhead, and the boat rolls wildly. The crew gave three hearty cheers. And blindly, they plunged into the open and lonely Atlantic. What a way to spend Christmas Day. The two owners of the Pequod have bid the ship farewell, and the crew floats out alone now, save for three mates and their captain, who still remains below deck, closed off in his quarters. When will we catch a glimpse of old Ahab? This chapter is the 23rd, called The Lee Shore, and it is very straightforward. It is very short, not even a page long, and it is very special to me. Not only is it special, but it reveals incredibly important aspects of the story although they are a bit obscure. It is basically Ishmael telling us about the fate of the brave man who steers the Pequod, Bulkington. It contains my favorite excerpt from the first half of the book, and Herman Melville displays a masterful knowledge and understanding of humanity and brotherliness. I've spoken about comparisons between Ishmael and the author, Herman Melville. To me, in many ways, Herman Melville expresses his beliefs and mannerisms through Ishmael. I love Ishmael as a character and I believe that when we look at Ishmael, we're in a way looking at a reflection of Herman. Now, this is only my personal opinion and belief, but in my heart I believe Herman was a great man. Not only incredible at writing and depicting his stories, but this mysterious, full-hearted and emotion-inducing poeticism is one for the ages. This could all go unsaid, for sure, easily and has no educational value, and I apologize for that. I just can't help but express my passion for these writings. It brings me to this euphoric place in my mind. When I read this type of passage, like I mentioned in a prior episode, it's so awesome to ingest and dissect and to let it run through you. It's this raw passion for life and adventure that shine through these pages, straight from Melville's soul. Um... That's why it's so hard for me to hear when someone says, you know, like, I can't stand Moby Dick or, you know, it's one of the worst classics or something like that. It just saddens me that it's so misunderstood at times because it's such an incredible work. Um, now, I did want to say that I might have to apologize to some of you for speaking so highly of Herman Melville. Not that I'm speaking so highly of him, but... Often I gush about his writing and the person that he potentially was. I will read this full page in its entirety, word for word, um, the one I was talking about, but I just wanted to let you guys know, again, you know, how much, how I feel about him and his writings. Now, back to the excerpt, I would love for you guys to read along with me, um, or read it for yourself before, um to give some more context to yourself. I've spoken of the character Bulkington in episode part two, Night with a Cannibal, at around seven minutes in. He's a man of sober mannerisms that stayed at the same inn Ishmael did. Ishmael watched the man and silently praised the way he carried himself. 
he can tell somehow just by looking at him that he's a good man. Most likely with a family back home. And we came to the conclusion that Bulkington, in this story, represents the many men who go to die for a greater cause, or sometimes for reasons that are unfair to them. The innocent and honest bystander who gets swept into the crowd of those who are drowning. As far as we know, reading this far into the book, the purpose of this voyage is not that of a regular whaling one. So thus far, it can't be said that he's going along for anything other than a normal trip. But as we will soon see, this trip is much more than a normal whaling voyage. In this upcoming short passage, Ishmael reflects upon the matter and is inwardly expressing his anguish for men like Bulkington, those oblivious good ones who don't deserve the pain that's bestowed upon him. Ishmael states that these six inches of text are a stoneless grave for Bulkington. So we know now that Bulkington will die at some point in this story. At sea for sure. Let's read it now and discuss it a bit more. I'll explain it afterwards as well. It's the middle of the night and to Ishmael's surprise he sees Bulkington steering the ship. He hadn't seen him since the inn. And he steered the ship valiantly, heroically almost, through the icy night. And I quote, some chapters back, one Bulkington was spoken of. A tall, new-landed mariner encountered in New Bedford at the Spouter Inn. When on that shivering winter's night, the Pequod thrust her vindictive bows into the cold, malicious waves, who should I see standing at her helm but Bulkington? I looked with sympathetic awe and fearlessness upon the man who in midwinter just landed from a four years dangerous voyage. I looked with sympathetic awe and fearlessness upon the man who in midwinter just landed from four years dangerous voyage could so unrestingly push off again for still another tempestuous term. The land seemed scorching to his feet. Wonderfulest things are ever the unmentionable. Deep memories yield no epitaphs. This six-inch chapter is the stoneless grave of Bulkington. Let me only say that it fared with him, as with the storm-tossed ship that miserably drives along the leeward land. The port would fain give succor. The port is pitiful. In the port is safety, comfort, hearthstone, supper, warm blankets, friends, all that is kind to our mortalities. But in that gale, the port, the land, is that ship's direst jeopardy. She must fly all hospitality. One touch of land, though it but graze the keel, would make her shudder through and through. With all her might she crowds all sail offshore, in so doing, bites against the very winds that fain would blow her homeward, seeks all the last sea's landlessness again, for refuge's sake for a lonely rushing into peril, her only friend, her bitterest foe. Know ye now, Bulkington? Glimpses do you seem to see of that mortally intolerable truth that all deep, earnest thinking is but the intrepid effort of the soul to keep the open independence of her own sea, while the wildest winds of heaven and earth conspire to cast her on the treacherous, slavish shore 
but as in landlessness alone resides the highest truth, shoreless, indefinite as God. So, better it is to perish in that howling infinite than to be ingloriously dashed upon the lee. Even if that were safety, who would craven crawl to land? Terrors of the terrible. Is all this agony so vain? Take heart. Take heart, O Bulkington. Bear thee grimly, demigod. Up from the spray of thy ocean perishing, straight up leaps thy apotheosis. Unquote. Incredible. Just incredible. A display of poeticism and words of fantastic wisdom and recognition of Ishmael's premonition of Bulkington's untimely fate. A terribly sad and gripping passage. Ishmael's expressing his lament towards Bulkington, who's unaware of all that goes around him. I hope you all don't mind if I explain what was just said in more modern and understandable terms for the listener's understanding of the story. Here's my version of what was said. It is I, Ishmael. Some chapters back, Bulkington was spoken of. A tall, new-landed marina encountered at New Bedford in the inn. When on that shivering winter's night, the Pequot thrust her vengeful bows into the cold and deadly waves, who should I see standing at her helm but Bulkington? I looked at him in awe, felt sorry for the lad. He displays such fearlessness as he steers through the night. He'd only landed in midwinter from a four years voyage, and it was a dangerous one. He must be restless, for not even a month later he's off for another four year haul. The ground must be burning to his feet. Memories no matter how powerful, are never enough to credit a man when he dies. These next few words are my prayer for him, my commemoration of Bulkington. In his ways, he's so much like this ship, how it miserably leaves all comfort of the shores behind. Though the wind wishes to blow her home, to the shore. She fights it, near thirst for adventure. It seems one touch of land would kill him, yet somehow all these comforts of home could not fill their soul, and so they fight it. The sea, the ship's only friend, and yet her worst enemy. The same can be said of Bulkington. Do you have any idea, Bulkington? Do you know what fate awaits you? This deadly thirst for adventure. Have you seen visions of that truth that humans cannot accept? That the soul wants independence in this world, no matter what the cost. Fate wishes to suppress you, my friend. The sea is godlike in its mysticism and unknown as he. So, 
It's better to die in that howling infinite typhoon than to die lying on the shore, even if that were safety. For those who are like mice will cling to land. Terrors of the open ocean show themselves. Terrors. Is all this pain worth anything? Take heed and take heart, O Bulkington. You are divine among us, my friend. The heavens await you, surely. And look, as the ocean mightily sprays and splashes straight up, up. There lies your finest hour. Not much more can be said of that chapter, but we have insight into the future of the Pequod, and it's so very powerful. Now, the following chapter is called The Advocate, and includes Ishmael advocating for the whaling business. It's a sort of message to landsmen or people who don't believe whaling to be worth anything. Ishmael feels that whalers deserve more credit, essentially. But dare I say, this chapter is not of utmost importance. It's a chapter for convincing though some very good points are made. Like, whale's oil has been used for many things throughout history. Important things. He also explains some of the history of whaling and how it's been a large part of uh, different societies on the planet. He tells us that the whale ship uh, is his Yale College and his Harvard, where he learned the most throughout his life. He tells us there's great dignity in whaling. He says that some people will say that whalemen have no good blood in their veins. He can't stand when he hears this. He says they have something better than royal blood, saying that Nantucket's old settlers and ancestors were full of harpooners. He then goes on, quite oddly, to speak about all the products whaling provides for the world. It definitely tells the book's age. As if it were being edited in this day and age, there's no way they would have allowed that in. Now, that's just an incredible portion of this book so far that we've covered today. Um, you got a lot of insight to new characters and some great foreshadowing. Uh, I love how this book is not afraid to tell you what may be happening. Often, just tells you straight up what's going to happen to a character. And it really gives you more perspective and lets you, uh, I don't know, lets you, lets you digest the story in a different way than you would have. We're just discovering when it happens in the event. Uh, it's a really unique way of writing. All he has in this book is unique. Um, you can come to this book searching for kind of any genre, and you'll find it at some point, whether it's comedy or adventure. You'll be finding it, and you can also learn a lot. And like I've mentioned in prior episodes, a lot of the themes and ideas and lessons, like life lessons that are heard in this story, still hold true today. Very, very true. And there's a lot of good things to learn and hear. And I think it's just a book everyone should read at some point in their life. And that being said, my night readers, I hope you'll join me in this wonderful journey. I hope you'll go back and listen to all the episodes I've had so far. I welcome you. And I know you can do it. I welcome you to challenge yourself and challenge your mind and your reading capabilities and to learn. And we're all going to learn words and we're all going to be stuck at some points in this book. But that's part of the voyage, honestly. So if you could stick it out with me. And if you have any anything you're harboring about this book, any negative feelings, I ask you to please come to this book with a fresh, you know, fresh mind, a fresh palate. 
you soak it up as if you've never heard anything about it, as if no one ever made you read it in school, as if you've never heard anything negative about it. I promise it'll be worth your time, and I promise you can do it. Uh, that all being said, this is going to be the end of my seventh episode today. The next episode is going to be another of your favorite reads with some great, great guests I've been able to connect with and bring on. Again, like I said, if you want to be in a future episode, just let me know, and we'll get that going on. Obviously, you can hear my podcast on Spotify, iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, all that stuff. Thank you all for listening. This episode was recorded and produced by Dylan C. So go on, flip your pages, drop your swords, pick up your pens and reading spectacles. Let us read on.